Today we're going to finish our brief overview of 17th century rationalism, and I want to give some attention to a person in that group who is very important for the legacy that he has given to the church. And I'm thinking of the French mathematician, physicist, and theologian whose name was Blaise Pascal. And Pascal is interesting to us because he combined a passion for Christian apologetics, a concern for the logical aspects of faith, but had a certain twist to his thinking that makes him somewhat different from the other thinkers of the same period. And that is, Pascal was a man of profound passion who emphasized in many of his writings the relationship of the heart to Christian faith. And obviously, a lot of that was a direct result of a personal religious experience he had that was so intense that it turned his life upside down and left him such a changed man that he was, in a sense, preoccupied with his spiritual experience from that day forward. Now, he was, as I said, a theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, but strongly resisted the Jesuit order of that church, and resisted much of classical medieval theology. And he was involved in a movement in the 17th century that also has great historical significance, a movement called Jansenism. And Jansenism was important because it represented a post-Reformation revival of the theology of St. Augustine, but from within the Roman Catholic Church rather than outside of it, as was the case with the Protestant Reformers. Luther and Calvin both were very, very much influenced by St. Augustine in their theology, but their commitment to Augustine led them to leave the Roman Catholic Communion, whereas Pascal remained within the Catholic Church. Though he became part of this group that were engaged in the revival of Augustinianism that sounded almost like pure Calvinism, which then came under the criticism of the church and ultimately was condemned as a heretical movement by the church. But there was also a strong mystical element that was found in this particular movement, and that would strike a chord with Pascal's emphasis on the heart. Well, probably the most important work that comes from Pascal are what are called the ponces, which simply means the reflections or thoughts. And they are sort of a loosely knit collection of ideas that he penned during his lifetime. The Ponces weren't published until after his death. But the two facets for which Pascal is most known historically are, first of all, with respect to his understanding of the uniqueness of man. And he gives, again, a slightly different twist to the understanding of man from the somewhat cold and abstract view of the Middle Ages that simply saw the uniqueness of man. 
consisting in our rationality and our ability to make choices and that sort of thing. Rather, Pascal spoke of man as the great paradox of creation. And the paradoxical character of man is found in this, that Pascal said that man at the same time, but not in the same relationship, is that creature with the highest grandeur and that creature with the worst misery. And so that we as human beings live our lives in this paradoxical environment of oscillating between grandeur on the one hand and misery on the other. Now, at what sense does he find man's grandeur? Well, here is a point of contact with the earlier thinking of the church, that is, finding in the human species the advanced ability to think and to reflect to a degree that presumably no other creature, save for the angels, is capable of pursuing. That we can contemplate ourselves and our own existence and our own life situation. We wonder how much an ant who is industrious and prepares for the future and so on has the ability to contemplate his own existence, his own destiny, his own origin. We talk about the animal kingdom as including creatures who operate through some kind of basic response to external stimulations and by instinct. I'm not sure what instinct really is, but it must be a lower form of consciousness. But in the case of Pascal, he understands that man is contemplative by nature. We have been given by our Creator, this unique ability to think, not only to respond to what's happening immediately, but to think about tomorrow and to have memories of yesterday, and not only that, but to evaluate the goodness or the badness of our life situation. So, man is of the highest grandeur because he has this capacity to think of himself reflectively. And yet at the same time, this ability to think is what provides the worst kind of misery for us. Because not only can we contemplate our own existence, but we always have the ability to contemplate a better life than we presently enjoy. And with that, the realization that we are unable to accomplish it for ourselves. That is to say, the power of the imagination is such that we can conceive of life without pain, of life without problems, of life without suffering, of life without death, but yet we are powerless to escape suffering. We are powerless to escape death And so that all of our life is lived with that cognizant awareness of the reality of pain, the reality of suffering, and the certainty of death. We all go through life with the sword of Damocles hanging over our necks. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We hope for good news. 
but we fear the bad news. Now, again, the misery is in being able to contemplate a utopian existence, a return to Eden, an experience of paradise. And we have that with the view of heaven. But we know that until we go to heaven, we cannot experience it. And so, in that sense, we must always live in the context of a certain frustration, a certain misery of not being able to rid ourselves completely of all of the potential and real problems that attend human existence. But this business of the thought of heaven is something that because of the profound religious experience that Pascal had, that it was not simply to his idea the empty imagination of psychological wish projection whereby the creature just projects into the future his idea of absolute bliss and happiness because Pascal, being a Christian, was convinced that there is such a place as heaven and that he was living his life with a view towards entering into the final rest that God promises His people. Now, some people in the academic world in which he lived were quite skeptical about this paradisical place that we call heaven. And not only were they skeptical, but in many cases they were cynical. And they wanted reasons to believe in this future state of happiness. Well, it's at this point that Pascal delivers a kind of twist that makes him famous in the history of apologetics. Because normally, when Christian apologists seek to give a reason to believe in the existence of God and to believe in the existence of heaven and to give a reason for the hope that is within us, they will point to all kinds of logically constructed arguments such as the cosmological arguments and the ontological arguments as we've seen already with Anselm and the like. But Pascal took a different approach to this. In a sense, he was the Groucho Marx of the 17th century. He was telling that everybody was playing the game, you bet your life, so that everybody in this world has to make a decision at some point as to where they're going to invest their energy, where they're going to invest their hope, and how they're going to live their life. Are they going to do it by faith in the promises of God, or are they going to restrict their decisions to responding simply to the secular perspective, to what they can taste and touch and see and feel and experience right here and now? In the final analysis, Pascal understood that everybody has already in their lives, that wherever they are in their lives, made that decision that you at the present moment are either living on the basis of a Christian worldview where you are believing that God exists and that He will reward those who search after Him and who seek to obey Him and that He will punish those who flee from Him. And if you live your life on that basis, you are living what we call at Ligonier, quorum Deo, before the face of God, with the God hypothesis, the God concept, the very center of your thinking. It's a theocentric life and worldview. 
whereas other people who may tip their hat to the theoretical existence of God live as if there were no God. That is, they live out what we've called practical atheism. And that person who lives like that, in a very existential sense, is betting his or her life that there is no God, and that he will not be held accountable for his behavior at the end of his or her sojourn on this planet. And so Pascal mused on this business and came up with what is called now in the history of theoretical thought, Pascal's Wager. And the wager goes something like this, that if a person bets his or her life that there is a God and lives in light of that bet, refrains from unrestricted evil, seeks to live sacrificially, seeks to forego some of the pleasures that are offered by the world, that if that person dies and there is no God, in the final analysis, that person really hasn't lost anything because that person has enjoyed a better life. Whereas the person who bets that there is no God and lives their life accordingly by a wanton lack of moral restraint, indulging their own pleasures, following after their own lusts, living as a self-centered individual, and then that person dies and finds out that there really is a God, that person's in big trouble. That person is now facing the consequences of the eternal judgment of God. And so, in a sense, what Pascal is saying to the agnostic or to the skeptic That if you don't know if God exists, if you're not sure that He really is there and He really is the one who will judge you at the end of your days, in the midst of your uncertainty, the best bet that you can make, the sensible bet that you can make, is to protect your downside, minimize your risks, and maximize the upside And the practical, intelligent thing to do would be to bet that God is there and is true. Again, if your bet is wrong and you lose, you haven't lost anything. And if you bet that He isn't there and He is, you've lost everything. Now, A lot of attention has been given to this particular wager, and people have sought to poke holes in it. The first thing I want to say in defense of Pascal is, as I said earlier, the Ponces, the book that was published after his death of his reflections, were just that. They were isolated reflections, not a fully developed systematic study of this sort of thing. And he's thinking on his feet, as it were, and thinks about this and said, well, what if I'm wrong or what if I'm right? And he does that. And some people are saying, well, wait a minute. Is this a sound argument for the existence of God? Well, if you look at it as an argument for the existence of God in the theoretical sense, 
I think the answer can only be no, it's not a sound argument for the existence of God. It's more existentially oriented in that regard, even though Pascal lived before the advent of existentialism. There were many modern existentialists who looked back to Pascal as one who anticipated the thinking of a man like Kierkegaard, for example, who called human beings to be passionately engaged in the subjective aspects of human existence, walking by faith, living by faith, living on the edge of risk, trusting God in the darkness, as it were. And Pascal being the same kind of man of passion as Kierkegaard would be at a later time, obviously, is thinking in these categories. Now, some people turn the argument a little bit modified and will say that the most satisfying human existence is that existence that is lived within the framework of faith and in God. Because that faith in God gives meaning and significance to human existence. And if you eliminate God from your consideration and from your hypothesis and are thinking logically and consistently, the only conclusion you can come to is the one that Nietzsche comes to later, namely that you are insignificant, that your life is meaningless, and that you are of all creatures the most to be pitied. In a sense, He's echoing the thinking of the Apostle Paul, as Paul spells it out in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians when he says, if Christ is not raised, what are the implications of that? Then you're still in your sins, and those who have died have perished altogether. And you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But you see, Pascal isn't quite ready to give it that either or, because he says, if you eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you die, and God is there, you're in serious trouble because you've lived a life of unrestrained hedonism and you will pay the eternal price for that. But on the one hand, people are arguing for God by saying God is the only, only being who can satisfy the deepest yearnings of the human heart and of the human soul. And so it's an affair of the heart at this point. It certainly was for Pascal that his heart was ablaze, he said, with the fire that he had experienced in his personal encounter with God. And people doubted that. He would say, try it. You'll like it. Step into the arena of faith, and you will find the only way to find satisfaction and meaning. Well, in one sense, that is an argument for God if we make the assumption that life is meaningful. But the hardcore nihilists of modern thought would say that's the ultimate cop-out. And the ultimate cop-out is simply to flee to God because we can't bear the thought of life without Him. Well, Pascal was not so naive as to assume that God exists simply because we want Him to exist. But he's restricting his wager to this, if you don't know if you're unsure, if you're afflicted with uncertainty, you still have to make a decision because you either assume that God is or you assume that He isn't. Or let's put it another way. We can live our lives 
betting that God exists, or we can choose to walk away from the table and not place a bet at all. However, by not placing a bet at all, you are placing a bet. You're betting that He isn't there because he understands that with respect to the person's relationship to Almighty God, there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. You're either for God or you're not for God. And not to be for God is to be against God. That's the point. Now, the other weakness that I have to point out is this, where the bet, I think, loses something is he says that if you bet that there is a God and there isn't, you haven't lost anything. Well, you certainly haven't lost anything of eternal value because there wouldn't be anything of eternal value. Nothing would matter ultimately if there is no God. However, in terms of the personal aspirations and appetites and desires and delights that you have in this world, to be a Christian means many times to deny yourself what all things being equal you might desperately desire. If I have nothing but this life, why should I be selfless? Why should I be sacrificial? Why should I be concerned about other people? I will have lost whatever momentary chance of happiness or pleasure I could have had had I not been deceived into believing in a God who doesn't exist. So that argument in terms of you bet your life was not found to be very satisfying to people who were facing the moment-by-moment options, enticements, and allurements of present happiness. But the bottom line is this. For Pascal, the wise person lives a life of delayed gratification. The supreme gratification remains fellowship and communion with God.